The following resource is brought to you by Real Life Community Church in Richmond, Kentucky. We hope you're both challenged and encouraged by this message from Pastor Chris May. Last week I started unpacking this uh, chapter. We began looking at the subject of the holiness of God. So in our English language, we talked about when we wish to convey emphasis through writing, what do we use? We, we might underline a, a word or phrase, or we might uh, use a bold font or put an asterisk beside it. Or if you're texting, what do you do when you want to convey emphasis? You write in all caps, right? Some of you do that constantly because you don't realize you're always shouting at people via text. So in Hebrew literature, one of the ways that magnitude or emphasis is conveyed is by the use of repetition. So there is only one attribute of God that is repeated three times consecutively in the scriptures. And it is here in Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. So in light of scripture's emphasis on God's holiness, we should consider what does this tell us about God and what does this tell us about ourselves? Now, if you weren't here last week, I, I began this uh, unpacking this chapter. So let me just give you uh, just kind of a summary of what we talked about last week. Holiness, as we discussed, has the idea with it of separateness. God is separate from his creation. But we have to be careful here. Uh, the late R.C. Sproul pointed out that God is not separate from us in the way that a table is separate from a chair. God is transcendently separate from his creation. To transcend means to go above or beyond something. And how many know that God is above us? His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts above our thoughts. And then you could say that God's holiness is almost synonymous with his deity. Uh, Pastor John Piper said God is holy because God is God. And so holiness has to do with God's moral perfection, the sum of who he is. It's not necessarily just a single attribute, but instead it's kind of the sum of his perfection. So you could say this, that God loves us with a holy love. His love is above ours. God has a holy anger. He, he doesn't sin in anger. He has a holy anger, a holy wrath. He, his, his mercy is holy. His justice is holy. And you know, many people today have a very low view of God. God has been somewhat defanged in the Western world, has he not? Kind of turned into this cute and cuddly creature. That's not the biblical view of God. God is above us. He is beyond us. He is to be revered. He is to be feared. Last week, we looked at the first few verses of this text, and we asked, what does this tell us about God? And we saw that God is everlasting. His kingdom will stand forever. No matter what you see happening in the world around you right now, if you are part of God's church, know this, the gates of hell shall not come against it. God's kingdom will stand forever. Then we saw that God is sovereign. He is all-powerful. His plans will never be thwarted. He is majestic. His beauty and splendor are unmatched. 
And again, he is to be revered and he alone is worthy of praise. So this gives us a good picture, though not a complete picture of God's holiness. And today we're going to consider how his holiness impacts us as his people. So with that being said, I invite you to go with me to Isaiah chapter 6. And as is custom in this church, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Isaiah chapter 6, I'll be reading from the ESV. So in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings with the two, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard a voice saying to me, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. This is the word of the Lord and you may be seated. I want to walk you through two different parts of Isaiah's experience with God as he is, experiences this wonderful, wonderful presence of God. I want to begin by talking about his misery, and then secondly, I want to talk about his experience with God's mercy. I'm getting a low feedback up here, I think. If anyone has reason to feel good about his own spirituality amongst the Israelites, the people of God, it would be Isaiah. The nation has gone into great spiritual decline since the end of King Uzziah's reign in Judah. Can somebody help me fix that? Awesome, thank you. So when Isaiah has this vision, he is likely in the temple seeking the Lord's direction. So here's what I want you to see. This man, Isaiah, is amongst the spiritual elite of Israel. But I want you to notice what happens when he actually is in the presence of God. Look at verse 4. Thank you. The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, here's Isaiah's response to the presence of God. Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You know, I think I've shared this with you before, but a, a few years back, I had a couple of errands to run, a couple of hospital visits in Lexington. And I had some time in between appointments, and I really needed a haircut. And uh, the, the guy who normally cut my hair was, was busy, so I just kind of Googled and tried to find a, a place uh, that I could get my hair cut. And so I, fi I find this place there in Lexington, and it's real close to where I'm at. And I walk in, and before I know it, I'm sitting down in a seat, and all the barbers there are just using filthy language. 
But I'm committed. I'm in the chair. They've started, right? I've got to get this haircut. And so they go on, and they're just talking about every colorful thing in the world. And all of a sudden, the guy cutting my hair, he says, you know what? He says, uh, he says I, I smoked so much pot this week. And he, he, then he gets a little nervous, and he looks down at me, and he says, hey, you're not a cop, are you? And I said, worse, I'm a preacher. <laughs> and his eyes, just, I mean, just, I mean, get so large, and his, he kind of turns white. And I'll tell you what, the conversation turned uh, to, to be quite different from that point on. So let me just ask you, if in my presence, this imperfect man that I am, if I can have that kind of traumatic impact on somebody, can you imagine what would happen if you actually got into the true manifest presence of God, the throne room of God, as Isaiah did? Woe is me, he says. I'm going to go a little bit deep for a second, but, but stay with me. This is important. The literary form that was common to the prophet of Israel was what we call the oracle, all right? So among the Jews, there were two types of oracles. There was the oracle of will, W-H-E-E-L, and the oracle of woe, all right? So oracles of will were this. They were announcements that God gave to the prophets that were good news. You wanted an oracle of will. And so the word used to introduce this good news would be the word that we're familiar with, bless or blessed. So Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says this in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. So he was pronouncing the oracle of God's divine blessing upon those who lived in these ways. But the antithesis of this oracle was the oracle of woe. You do not want an oracle of woe, all right? Not that you're going to receive that this week, but uh, the, you don't want an oracle of woe. So these were announcements that God gave the prophets that were bad news. And Jesus began, for instance, uh, his kind of rebuke of the hypocritical scribes and Pharisees with these words in Matthew 23, 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And this is a warning. What is so intriguing in this text is that Isaiah seems to do something that is totally unheard of. He actually pronounces a prophetic utterance of doom upon himself. Woe is me. Wow. Here's what's happening. When Isaiah gets this vision, for the first time perhaps in his life, he really gets a glimpse of God's holiness, of who God is, his majesty, his beauty, and frankly, it terrifies him. But Isaiah sees something else here. He doesn't just see God. Maybe for the first time, he sees his true self. He sees the wretchedness of his own heart. He sees his sin, and he cries out in anguish, woe is me. Now, we live in a, a day and age where people use on social media these things called filters, right? Don't act like you haven't done it, right? So maybe you've met somebody online, or you've seen them online the first time, and you're like, man, that's a nice-looking person. And then you meet them in person, and, well, you know, right? It can be scary, 
And often, you know, it's like that when we look at ourselves in the mirror. Judging by the world around us, we think that we're pretty good, don't we? It's like we have this kind of filter of other people upon our lives. When we look at ourselves, we say, hey, I'm actually a pretty good person because I'm not like so-and-so. But when people have an encounter with God, when they truly get a glimpse of the holiness of God and who He really is, when people encounter Jesus Christ, it's kind of like this. The filter is removed. It can be scary. And we see the vileness of our own hearts. It's exactly what happens to Isaiah. And he, he, he says this. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. Now, the King James Version translates the word, that, that word here, lost, as broken or undone. Excuse me. And, and I like that because here's what's happening. Isaiah, in the presence of God, is totally wrecked. He's totally undone. How many have ever experienced that? That's what tends to happen. We are broken in God's presence, but it's not a, a brokenness that tends to hurt us. It's, it's a brokenness that happens so that he can rebuild us. So when Isaiah realizes the depths of his sins, he is broken to the core. For I'm a man of unclean lips, he says, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. Isaiah is confessing his sin. And here's what's so intriguing here. Before Isaiah says anything about his people, many of whom, whom are less, who are less spiritual than him, before he says anything about their spirituality, he says this, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. He begins with himself. How many know we're really good about blaming other people, right, for our sin, for, for our destruction? Either individuals or groups of people. Like, I hate to tell you this, but what's happening in the world, it's not the Democrats' fault. It's not the Republicans' fault. It's not a group's fault. It's sin. And the only way that's going to change is if we quit blaming everybody else and we begin to look at the sin of our own hearts. I wish I could get some help today. When we are confronted with the true presence of God, here's what happens. We, we, become so, we, we are so close then to the light, the truth, that the darkness of our own, own hearts cannot be masked any longer. It is revealed. We have no choice but to look inwardly. And Isaiah sees the whole nation around him in spiritual decline, yet he sees his own sin first. And you know, just in the midst of this pandemic, as we are seeking the Lord and praying for revival, this is my practice. As I, I start with me and say, me and myself, and I say, Lord, hey, do it in my heart first. Lead me to confession of sin first. Show me where I'm failing you first. And then branch out to others. Because, Lord, I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm missing the mark. We need to start with ourselves and quit blaming everybody else around us. Now, why does Isaiah, Isaiah say here that I'm a man of unclean lips instead of a, I'm a man of unclean actions? Well, I believe it's because the lips, the mouth, what we say reveals the truth of who we are. It, it, it reveals the true state of our heart. Amen? Luke 6.45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, 
and the evil person out of evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks or types on Facebook. Come on, somebody. You want to know where somebody stands with the Lord? Go right now on their Facebook wall, and then you can tell if they're bitter, if they're angry, if they're full of guile, or if they're full of blessing. Real easy. It's not fair, is it? <laughs> Used to not be this easy. Matthew 15, 11, it's not what goes into a mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. The Pharisees, see, the religious of uh, Jesus' day are so concerned with outward cleanliness, making the outside look good. That's what they were about. But the inside is what God sees. And with the, in the Pharisees' case, the inside was filthy. Their hearts were far from God. So in confessing that he is a man of unclean lips, Isaiah is confessing the depths of his own sin. And in great humility, he realizes that he does not have an ounce of righteousness that he can stand on. He's undone. He's broken to the, uh, to the core. He falls down. Woe is me. I'm unclean. That's his misery. And that's, what, that's kind of the starting point. If you want to have a relationship with God, is to realize the depths of your own sin. But I'm glad that the story doesn't end there, aren't you? Let's look at God's mercy. Verse 6, then one of the seraphim, these angelic beings, if you will, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal. And he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. The seraphim taking a, a burning coal from the altar makes his way to Isaiah and he touches his mouth and he declares, your guilt is taken away. Now it's interesting that the lips are the most intimate and sensitive part of the body. If you ever burned your, your mouth on something, like it's painful, right? This was surely a painful moment for Isaiah. You can kind of hear the flesh sizzle, can't you? But this was a merciful act of God. It was an act of cleansing. Here's what I want you to see. This was not cheap grace. It's not intellectual believism. It's, it is a wrestling. It's a searing of the flesh. And that is what saving faith looks like. Salvation is not just raising your hand and, and, and repeating uh, some magical prayer. It is a heartfelt faith that overflows into a profession of, the, uh, of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is having a broken and contrite heart before the presence of God. It is repentant faith, and it is a searing of the flesh, and it's a turning to Jesus Christ. Has that happened in your life? Galatians 2.20, Paul says it like this, For I have been crucified with Christ. That's painful. He says, It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
So this experience, this searing of the flesh doesn't ultimately hurt Isaiah. It actually heals him. God, by his great mercy, here's what he does. He rebuilds this broken prophet and he uses him for kingdom purposes. In verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here's Isaiah's response, here I am, send me. Wow. Here's what's so amazing. Think of this. In one moment, Isaiah feels like a nothing. He's broken. He's undone. Humiliated by his own sin. Knowing the wickedness of his own heart for the very first time. But then, after experiencing the grace of Almighty God who picks him up, he has a new confidence in his usability. And it's a humble confidence. And now he can stand before the living God and say, Hey, here I am, Lord. Send me. Think of that. From woe is me, I'm nothing, I'm undone, to experiencing God's grace in the atoning of his sin, and now saying, Lord, here I am, your vessel. You can use me. Friends, that is a great, wonderful picture of the grace of our God. Do you see the gospel here? Do you see the gospel here? I'll remind you, I've used this many times, but I love Tim Keller's summation of the gospel. It's this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at that very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. So powerful. To know why the gospel of Jesus Christ is actually good news, you and I first have to come to terms with the bad news, and that is that we are more wicked than we ever dared imagine. There's no such thing as a quote-unquote good person. Here's the tragedy of this. I know that you can compare yourself to somebody else and say, oh, compared to them, I'm a good person. But here's the standard according to God. It's his own holiness, his own moral perfection. And if we could get a glimpse of that, we would be right there with Isaiah and say, woe is me, I'm unclean. The tragedy is this, that many people right now all over our world are banking on their own, own goodness to get to heaven. You can't do it. They're hoping that the kind of scales uh, weigh out in their favor. That the good deeds outweigh the bad deeds. But God says if you've broken one of his laws, you're guilty of breaking the whole law. And every one of us has. He says there are none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The only way to know God, to draw near to Him, to be part of His kingdom, to be part of His family, to have salvation, is to do exactly, precisely what Isaiah does here. To fall on your face before the living God, to get a glimpse of your own sin, and to say, woe is me, a sinner. I'm a man, I'm a woman of unclean lips. And here's the beauty of this. In that moment, You'll come undone, I promise you. But you'll be in a place where God will put you back together. He'll bring you, he'll welcome you into his family, into his kingdom. It's a beautiful thing. 
Many of you were, were raised in church, right? And compared to the world, you have lived probably pretty clean lives. But let me ask you, have you come to this place where you have put yourself up to the light of Jesus? If you'll respond today with a broken and contrite heart, if you're watching online or if you're here, God will move in your life. Quit blaming the world around you for everything that's gone wrong in your life. Look inwardly today and repent as Isaiah does. And at that point, you're at a perfect position to receive God's mercy, just like Isaiah. Let me say one more thing, and this is important. It's not a blazing coal, thank the Lord, that touches us when we repent. But instead, we're touched with the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf on the cross of Calvary. It's not the seraphim that fly to us, but it's, it is the Son Himself that came to this earth to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, to pay the penalty of our sin. So Christ in His death appeased the wrath of God, and He has satisfied the, God's demands, His holy demands for righteousness. And through faith, here's what happens. Our lips are seared by the cross. And we are cleansed and able to stand before a holy God. Without Jesus, you and I cannot stand before a holy God. But through Jesus, through his sacrifice, we can stand here today and worship him and stand before him. We can know that we are in his family, part of his kingdom. We are sons and daughters of God. So may we consider the holiness of our great God, and as we do, may we have broken and contrite hearts, and may we experience the wonderful mercy of our Lord. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, or if you have questions about our church, you can email us at info at myrealchurch.org. Real Life Community Church is located at 335 Glendon Avenue in Richmond, Kentucky. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday at 1045 a.m. or Wednesday at 7 p.m. Visit us online at myrealchurch.org.